Welcome back to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Join me each week as I chat with someone who has a unique relationship to death in an attempt to better cope with my own and our own inevitable mortality. The whole goal of the show is to create and foster an open conversation about death to give people a space to not only listen, but relate and understand that we all go through trauma, we all go through loss, and we are all going to grieve. And we are all going to grieve in our own way. In this episode, I sit down with a dear friend of mine, also named Julia, who is also a nurse. And in this episode, there are going to be times where Julia and I are discussing heavy and intense topics, but almost in a lighthearted manner. Most people in the medical realm understand that in order to cope with the amount of trauma, death, and pain that we see, we do have to find a way to compartmentalize as well as disassociate our own feelings from our experiences. So at times in this interview, Julia and I will approach topics that may be really sensitive to some, but we are able to approach in almost a lighthearted and objective manner. So please just be reminded that Grief affects people differently and other people are able to talk about their situations and experiences in different ways. So let's dive right in with my interview with Julia Bird. And in this episode, we will discuss the impact of caring for a loved one with a terminal illness, how it can take a long time for some people to process grief, and just how traumatic it was for Julia to work in New York City in the height of COVID in spring of 2020. Hi, I'm Julia Bird. I am an ICU nurse and I help take care of my mom while she was on hospice battling with cancer. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we are named twins. And you were actually my preceptor when I transferred from neuromedicine into emergency medicine. And you taught me everything I know. I still remember that shift. And that was hilarious looking back. We had a woman stroking out. And uh, luckily for me, having neuro background, we able we took good care of that woman. I remember saying, oh, you got it. You know the scale, right? All went well. Um, so today, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time to chat with me. I think you have such a unique story to tell because not only are you an ICU nurse, but you were able to translate some of that experience into caring for a loved one. And then also in 2020, at the height of COVID, you took the time to go to New York and help take care of people. And I think experiencing all that you have has really given you a unique, a unique perspective on life and death and just having been around so much. I think having you on the show is super important to me because I think learning how your experiences affected you, I think a lot of people can relate and also learn from you. I think I have a different perspective as people say like, live your every day like your last. No, like some days you got to just watch TV all day and just be like, this is what's happening and that's okay. And like, if I, you know, I just heard it on a podcast, actually live every day as if like, if you died tomorrow, would you be content with how you lived that day? And I just was like, that is exactly it. Like if, yeah, if I, yesterday I slept most of the day or tried to, and then I went and hung out with my two girlfriends and we got dinner. I was like, this was a perfect day. Some people would say that's unproductive, but it's like, what makes you happy? Productivity isn't always the goal, in my opinion. Sometimes it's just having a good day. So, But I do want to talk a little bit about how you became a nurse. What, what in your life, what journey led you to that career path? So I love when people ask this because my mom watched me like kind of just help take care of my grandma. We would have her over every week for dinner. 
Um, we would take her to her appointments, especially like when she was becoming less able to do things for herself, like such as drive, you know, she like just like little things. I was like, yeah, my grandma can't open the door. Like I'll open it for her. It seemed to be very like common sense and like just easy for me. So my mom told me my junior year of high school, she's like, you're going to be a nurse. And I was like, okay, uh, I'm not good at school and I'm not smart. She's like, it's going to be really hard and you might fail, but like, I think you should do it. I think this is like what you're made to do. And my mom was never wrong, which is very annoying. Um, but she even when she was, she had some sort of like oral surgery and she had stitches at the top of her mouth and we were in church and the host of like the bread of Christ got stuck to those stitches and ripped them out and she was bleeding. And I like, didn't care that there was like blood everywhere. I was just like, Oh, we just need to put some paper towels in and like get you to a hospital so you can get more stitches. Like it was very like just everyday motion for me. And I think that's what like prompted her to say that. Most people would be gagging. Yeah. So I think it, you kind of learn at an early age, if you have the ability to see those kind of things and not be traumatized. And I think that's a really important quality in uh, especially emergency medicine nurse. And I, I remember you telling me a little bit about a surgery that your dad had that was kind of a little gruesome. Yeah, I always love like traumas and emergency type stuff. Not that we saw it on TV. We weren't even allowed to watch during the week. Um, but like I had this dollhouse too. I'm like, sorry, getting off topic. Um, and I had this like ambulance I got for Christmas one year and I like made the dad fall off of the roof and put him in the ambulance. And it was like right after my stepdad was like getting lights on the house for Christmas. He's like, what the heck? But like this surgery, my dad, he also passed from cancer when I was just turned seven. Um, and he had, he had one fake leg already from a, I have some sort of clot or DVT, something happened where like he wasn't taken to surgery fast enough. Well, the other leg after he was like in chemo and, you know, like fighting his battle, um, they did a full leg fasciotomy, which is like they open your skin just to let pressure out, but they did it from like groin to ankle. And I remember we went in and there was gummy bears because that's like what my parents did when we had to go to the hospital to see him they thought like oh it's going to be scary but like i hopped right up on his fake leg and was just like looking at the staples and was like what happened and they were just like what is wrong with this child you have a knack for <laughs> kind of gruesome scenes and that can help in the nursing realm where you don't feel so grossed out when we see kind of scary yucky anatomy kind of thing. So, so you ended up going into nursing school. It sounds like it was the right move for you with kind of your fascination and your ability to care and help um, for your loved ones that were, you know, injured or bleeding. And so, you know, as you were finishing nursing school, something pretty big happened to your family. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So my mom, um, she was diagnosed with cancer when I was a junior in high school. And then she was told like, you can do chemo, but this is always going to come back. So you may go into remission, but it'll keep coming back. And then she also, like, we went in the first round of remission with her, which was amazing. Um, and they told her, this is the longest she'll ever be in remission. And it lasted a little more than a year. So we were like, oh, this is, like, real. Um, and my senior year of nursing school, she passed away, like, 
12 hours after I take this like nursing prep board test, which I miserably failed. And I knew I was going to because school sucks. Um, and I've never been a good test taker, but at that point I was very like tunnel vision of like, I'm going to get this done as quickly as I can. I'm not going to really read any of the rationales to like help me, you know, like learn a little more. I'm just going to get back home. I'm going to spend the time with my mom. Like this is going to be coming like very soon. And then, yeah, it was six months before I graduated. Wow. I barely survived nursing school with all my family members super healthy. So I cannot imagine what that experience was like. Um, What kind of cancer did your mom have? Because I know it was kind of a unique. Yeah. So it was peritoneal, which means like your whole abdomen. So she like was diagnosed on a Tuesday. This was in June. I don't know why I remember this, but it was like on a Tuesday I got really mad at her when she said, cause she was going in for like a hernia CT scan. Cause they thought it was a hernia and she was healthy working all the time being like superwoman. And then she comes home and she's like, I have cancer. I'm getting surgery Friday. I was like, you're fucking dying on me. And I like ran to my room and like cried by myself. And, I, and she had to like come in my room and like console me like how selfish, but I mean, I was like 15 at that time. But she had like a major abdominal surgery on that Friday after being diagnosed. And it was like from like sternum to like down there area. And they took like cancer out of every organ. They took organs out. Then they were like, we're going to start chemo when you're healed. So that whole summer she was bed, like essentially bed bound. Like she could get up and go to the bathroom. We weren't doing bedpans then. But um, yeah, we spent that whole summer with her like she would tell us like what kind of wedding dress she wanted us to wear. And like, it was like, it, it's like such a warm memory in my heart and people are like, Oh, and I'm like, but it was like, people don't have those conversations. And I'm like, how blessed am I that I like got a full summer of that? Cause once she was in remission, like after her first round, she was like, I'm living life, baby. Like let's go travel. And not that she like neglected us or anything, but it was like, back to normal stuff do, like that our family did. Well, it's amazing that I think after this really extensive surgery and this round of chemo that she was able to kind of embrace her life and very lucky that she got the opportunity to take the time to talk with you about what kind of hope she had for you and your wedding and where to go and things to experience together because a lot of people don't get that. And I think that's a really special time that you got to have with her. And then I know kind of after a few years of, of the chemo and constantly kind of fighting in t- 2013 to 15, there was some deterioration. What was going on with your mom then? So she, her cancer had spread to her brain and like, I'm sure other places, but then they're doing this gamma knife, like radiation and all this hoopla. I don't even know what it's called at Shady Side, which it sounds terrible. I'm a nurse, but like, it was like so much to take in and like I remember taking her and like they like put your head in this like clay kind of like cage thing and it like surrounded your face and I'm like what who created this like who's in charge but um that I don't know if that was worse for her or the you know the cancer in her brain but like she mentally deteriorated and this is a woman who got like a perfect SAT score she was just like very very smart she was the manager at BNY private wealth like insanely smart woman who's like now thinking like that she has to shower before the home health nurse comes to give her a shower. She's like deteriorating in the dementia aspect and, and 
thank God, like she always knew who we were and she would yell at us like, you're stealing my money. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Mom, I'm here to help you. I know you. where you hide it too. Cause you hid it in front of me. Like last time I was here, you were like, showed me where to put the money so it doesn't get stolen. And now you're telling me I'm stealing it. Yeah. And I just, I think that's where I brought work into home because I keep it very separate. I'm very, and I'm not trying to be like, I'm good at compartmentalizing, but I will say I, I go home and work stays at work. And that's something I've had to learn to do throughout the years, um, like working various places. But I definitely brought that part of work into my home because I was thinking if I let this get to my head right now and we still have to take care of her, we're like, we're not going to get there. As a neuro nurse, I worked with people that had metastatic brain cancer and I've had people that were never racist, the gentlest, kindest people use slurs, people telling me I was the spawn of Satan, just that confusion. And I... As a nurse, it was easy for me to disassociate because these are my patients. I don't have a personal relationship. I don't have an emotional connection in a deeper sense. Of course, I always try to connect with my patients. But to have someone that you love, that cared for you, that raised you, telling you that they think you're stealing from them, it's got to be hard. And I think learning that ability to kind of not take it personally is super important in our job. But let alone with you know your mom, I, that would be really tough. Yeah, I think it was surreal when I was, it was like her last days. I remember, I don't know why I remember this, but I was going to get my eyebrows waxed and my mom hated when I like got my hair cut and eyebrows waxed because I would do dramatic things for no reason. And um, she like, she, that's when she like went to the bathroom, but like she was bed bound. So my stepdad like was asking me, how do I change her? Like, what's the best way to do it? And I had to show him like, this is how we turn people. This is how we get the fresh sheet under. This is how we like do the peri care. And that was pretty surreal that I was like, I know I'm turning my mom, but like, I feel like it's a, a, like I had to put myself at work, like work mindset. I'm turning somebody who needs cleaned up and that's it. And then once I was done, I was like, okay, you're my mom again. Like it was a very weird disassociation association game for me. Like, especially at the end, because then I'm like studying for this dumb test at school that like it nursing students, it doesn't matter what your grades are, C's get degrees. That's all I'm going to say. It, it was just, it was very like, I had to, I had to stay mentally okay because I knew this was like a start of like, you know, we start grieving when we find out someone has terminal cancer, but like, this was a start of like, it's about to get real. Started getting heavy and yes. more intensive because now you're cleaning up your mom and you're rolling her and you're force feeding her or convincing her to do what's right and what's safe. Yeah. We actually didn't even feed her at the end or like give her water. Like the nurse explained to my stepdad too, like she doesn't need water. She doesn't need food. She just, she's going to pass when she's ready. And it was really cool. My sister got home from the Coast Guard the night before, and then she passed the next morning. So it's like she waited. Like, that's so cool. Because I thought she was going to die way earlier in the week. You would be surprised how many people, how many stories, since I've been now investigating heavily into these experiences people are having, how many loved ones hold on until the grandkids can get back from college or the daughter can get there from out of town. And it's literally within minutes of like, I'm here, loved one. And then they're like, all right, peace. Thank you. Like, I just needed to say goodbye. 
and give you the opportunity to say goodbye. And I want to kind of go back to how you were talking about the food and water. And I think this is a really important topic because so many people at the end of life, they worry about grandma, mom, dad getting fluids, which aren't really necessary when the end goal is to, to, to pass away peacefully and without the food and water. But I think a lot of people, they, that's the only thing they can contribute is I can feed mom. I can feed dad. I can give them fluids. I can wipe their, their brow. And I think that's important too, but we have to find a way to like realize that the food and water isn't, isn't the care that you think it is. And sometimes just being there is the care. Yeah. I think when people don't deal with death a lot because nurses know, you know, they don't need that, that tube feed or that feeding tube, you know, they want to go home and die with dignity, not saying the family would, that's not dignity to them, but people go back to basic needs, right? Food, water, air, shelter. And so they think you need food and water. That's how I'm going to show you love. And that's how I'm going to show you I care when really that person probably just needs you to hold their hand for like hours and just say, I'm here. I'm here with you. You're okay to pass if you want to pass. And if you don't, we're going to watch TV. And like, that's what I did with my mom for like a week. That's something that I like tell families all the time. They're like, well, they're, they should be eating. They should have fluid. They're probably thirsty. People that stage with end of life are not thirsty. Like that has been proven. Yeah. They just want you like presence and like human connection is like what drives us as a species. So yeah, I think holding their hand is like the biggest thing you can do. Yeah. They don't need food, but they need love. They need compassion. They need a human touch to just know that they're not alone. So then eventually there came a point when your mom started deteriorating that hospice care kind of became a necessity. And uh, you'd kind of told me a little bit about um, the experience with the hospice nurse and how there was some, most hospices are really, really helpful, but it seems like you had kind of a different experience with the hospice nurse that kind of led you and your father to stepping up a little bit more in your mom's care. There was, she was very much, I want to die at home. That's how my dad died too, at home, which was really nice. I think that's like the biggest way to die with dignity. I think that's just the nicest thing you can do if someone is able to. I know some people are on ventilators and things and, you know, that's not accessible. Um, But she, we, I mean, we went home. And there was a couple, like, there was a couple nurses. One was fantastic. Um, but the other one, yeah, she just, like, I remember telling, talking shit on her to my stepdad being like, she's eating all our food and she's watching TV. And like, when mommy's getting up, he's like not even doing anything. And, um, we were like, yeah, we're going to fire her. And I was like, oh, and what am I doing? Like I'm in nursing school trying to be a nurse and then I'm putting other people down. But honestly, at the end of the day, it's your loved one. And if someone's not doing the right thing, it's very easy to tell if a nurse is in it for the money or the like fact that they actually like taking care of people and like trying to help as best they can. And I saw that right from like day one of, I was randomly home one day from school because I went to Duquesne. So it's 15 minutes from my house. But yeah, I was just like, um, we got to change something. And that's when my stepdad and I, I think another nurse did come in and like help her, especially cause he had to work too. Like he only had so much FMLA in over five years. That's pretty hard. Like using that, getting off. And then, I mean, he needs a sense of purpose too. So yeah, uh, we did step up a little bit in the sense of like, 
the taking care of her, watching her more. I mean, that man went through everything in those five years. Like she took it out on him the worst, especially with the dementia, because he was always around. Yeah, he he went through it. Like he stayed by her side because I would I mean, I could see people leaving in those situations. And this was your mom's second husband, correct? Because you, your, um, your dad passed away when you were seven. Just cause I think people might be like, well, there's a couple of dads going on here. But yes, yeah. it was your mother's second yeah. husband. Yeah. Just to clarify for explaining the family dynamic to someone now in my life, I'm like, first of all, if I'm just meeting you, I'm not gonna try because that's just silly. But like, if you catch on and ask, like, I won't lie. There's like a, a series of mom, stepdad, stepmom. So, yeah. but. Um, and then towards the end, there wasn't much sleeping when with you and your dad um, caring for your mom. What uh, you you said there was almost no sleeping at the very end. Yeah, at the very end, it was it was rough because my sister was trying to come home from the Coast Guard, getting out of military. Like, oh, I, that's a nightmare in itself. But um, she was trying to come home. Dave was taking care of my mom like 24 seven at this point because she was bed bound. So she's not like trying to run to the shower and fall now. I mean, she's like not causing that chaos, but, um, yeah, I was pretty much going to and from school almost every day. I think I'm pretty sure. Cause I took the bus home. Um, I would like walk downtown and take the bus home just to have more time. But yeah, I remember sleeping was not a thing. And like after she passed, like we did all the funeral stuff, we ate and then I slept like so incredibly well that night, which people would guess like, that's insane. Like, why would you like sleep well after? And it's like, I think we knew it was coming and it was like final relief, like that she's at peace. And I know a lot of people don't sleep well, but I mean, I, that was like the first night I slept. And you finally had a, you finally had a chance to sleep. And I don't think anyone would judge or criticize you for that because at the very end, it's like a kind of like a sprint where you're just like, go, 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 helping, caring, you know, making sure she's comfortable. And then finally, when she died, you were able to say, okay, now I actually, I can take hours to go sleep. Yes. And like, I don't have to like the night, I mean, the morning before I was woken up and my Dave's like, Hey, I think she died. And I was like, okay. And I'm like using my stethoscope that they freaking bought me for nursing school to like check if she has a heartbeat. So yeah, I went to bed and I'm like, I know nothing more catastrophic is going to happen tomorrow morning. So I like, I, I, my mind just shut off. And I think she wanted that. I'm like, I bet you she like put us to sleep. Just like go to bed. Yeah. Um, you said that you kind of were that you were kind of the person that pronounced your mom dead. You were, um, and it kind of sounds like you had a pretty uh, interesting experience going to what happened and kind of how your mind processed that while you were listening yeah. for a heartbeat. So yeah, my it was. I don't know why I remember this either. Seven o two a.m., which. I was like woken up by Dave. He's like, I think your mom died. And I'm like, okay, like, well, like, let's go listen. I don't know what to do. But we listened. And then I was like, yeah, she's like, definitely doesn't have a heartbeat. And then I was like, is someone going to like come over? And he's like, oh no, they just said to call them. I was like, okay. And then I went and made a cup of coffee, but was weird when I listened. It's like very hard to describe, but like we were on the left side of her bed and like I was looking down at like my stepdad and me looking at her 
listening, it was very, very weird. Like it was very like out of body as people say, but like, it was only a moment and it wasn't scary. It was just like a factual thing that happened that day. And like, I remember drinking coffee right after like, yeah, whose mom dies. And then they go have a cup of coffee, but I went and got coffee and then I was just sitting there like, huh? Okay. Like I didn't know how to process it. Well, I think it can take a long time to process, which we'll get into later how long it actually took for you to experience like that surge of intense, overwhelming emotions. Um, But real quick, I do want to talk because I think this is a really cool thing that your mom planned everything for her postmortem care. Tell me about how did that, what, what did she plan? What, what steps did she take to help you? And um, how did that help you and your dad? um, You know, were you, you were able to kind of she took control, so you were able to grieve. But what what all did she take care of for you guys? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So when my dad had passed when we were like seven and six years old, she had to plan everything. And I think that stuck with her having to plan everything. You do not know how expensive a funeral is, how much arrangement goes into it, the obit, the – oh, my gosh. Death certificates are so expensive. And you have to get like 25 minimum to like pass around like for taxes and work things and like, oh my gosh. Like I didn't realize all that stuff until I had to deal with it. She had the down to like, it was typed out the flowers she wanted, the colors of the flowers, what she wanted cremated or buried, what kind of urn she wanted. Um, or what are they called? Are they urns? Okay, cool. I was like the little, we picked purple. Yeah. Um, and then she wrote her own a bit. So it was like, this is, I was like, she is so smart, dude. Like everybody should do this because one, like everybody at the funeral, like said, wow, this is so Joan. Yeah. She wrote her own eulogy, which Dave like got up there and was like, yeah, so Joan wrote this and like, here it is. And I'm like, this is freaking awesome. And, um, he like made a little funny joke about it. Cause like, that's our family. Like, like bad things are going to happen. Like, I think that's so cool because there it's, you should be selfish when you're dying. Like shit, you should be remembered the way you want to be remembered. And like you writing your own obituary. I have it upstairs. I think it's so cool. I'm like, that's so smart. Um, but even then we had, um, what are they called? Like accountants and that she worked with and not her company, um, who she kind of set up like, you know, money things and blah, blah, blah. But she gave that accountant letters that she wrote to me, my sister and my stepdad, like to give to us after she died. That is like that movie. Um, P.S. I love you. Oh, oh my, my God. God. I freaking lost it in that office. I was like, I'm not going to read this. If my partner dies early and they do anything less than P.S. I love you, I will not grieve them. I just was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Oh my gosh. I have letters. Cause we got letters when we, I got a letter when I graduated high school. Cause we had known by then she was diagnosed, but like this letter was like, this is what you should do in life. This is how you are and how you could change. It was so funny. She gave you critiques. Yes. And the thing is, well, she was she was altered mentally for a, quite a while at the end. So she had to put this in place really early on. So she was preparing long before you even probably realized that she was, which is really cool. Yeah, I haven't read the letter in the while. I actually, I don't know why I do this, but I like to read all that stuff, like her letters and 
like go to her grave like around like when she died just because that's when it like hits me the hardest but now it's like a source of comfort but like I think she wrote the date in the letter I can't remember um but I'm just like like how cool is that like everybody should do that I half wonder if that is why leading to my next question, why it took you so damn long to start grieving because maybe she gave you a little bit of a little bit of connection. But um, regardless, it took you a long time until you were able to kind of process what happened. How long did it take until those floodgates opened and kind of what happened with that? Um, so I think as a person, like naturally, I don't process things fast. I'm not a speed thinker and I'm never going to be like, even when, you know, friend does me wrong and ex-boyfriends mean, it takes me like a week to really like express how I'm feeling of this is how I'm processing it. And I'm working on that. So I think that was already, I think what you said about, she kind of like left a little connection. I think I held on to that. Um, and so many people were around. Everybody's around the first two weeks. You get food to the door every night. It's wonderful. Grief casserole, I've just learned in oh my, my one of my other episodes. Less so many casseroles. I mean, she did have a few friends that just kept making us food, which I loved. Oh, my gosh. Chris's mac and cheese is fire. Um, I just had to give her a shout out. Yeah, once people, like, kind of slowly, their lives go on. And you're like, wait, like, I want to, like. I'm stuck here still. Yeah, and it's like well, I guess I'll move on. And at this point, you know, I'm graduating nursing school. I start going out a lot. Like if I'm not working, I'm out like at the bars, partying, losing friends, making new ones. Just I think that's nursing 101. Work your butt off and then drink yeah. your butt off. <laughs> yeah. It was to a point that I was like, like even my cousin who owns one of the bars was like, oh, you're out here a lot. And I'm like, oh, my mom just died fuck you so that was like a thing to throw in people's face because like I had not confronted it at all it took five full years for it to like hit me I was like oh so my mom's dead and like I can't go anyone and like people I see all my friends like going to their moms about things and calling them oh this is like real and then I was like oh I should go to therapy and then the first session was me crying for an hour, but like best 20 bucks I ever spent. And that was so needed. Like you said, it takes whatever amount of time it takes, but I think you did the right thing by when it hit, when it really um, enveloped you that you were able to find an outlet that is cathartic and therapeutic instead of like what you were doing before, which is just denying and hiding with alcohol and probably overworking as well. So finally you started therapy and that was when that was in the fall of 2019 and then in the winter and spring of 2020 we all know what happened if you don't know what happened you must be under a rock but you also have a really unique experience I got into emergency medicine because of COVID um, volunteering on the COVID floor my first ever de unexpected death happened like two weeks into my um, volunteer uh, on the COVID floor and I realized I have no fucking idea how to do CPR effectively. I've never done it. I don't know how to give epi. I don't know how to start an IO. I don't know how to use the Zoll. I don't know how to shock somebody. And I went into emergency medicine where we met. And for you, COVID also affected you probably a little bit more intensely than for me. Uh, tell me a little bit about what happened in March of 2020 and where you go, where you went. So I was 
traveling in January, 2020, I had like done my therapy and I'm like, now I'm ready to explore the world. And so I went to North Carolina, COVID hits in March, which that's very close to the end of my assignment. And I'm coming home. I was supposed to go to DC in May. So I would have a month off to just work at Presby casual, which is where we both worked. UPMC Presbyterian in Pittsburgh. <laughs> if you don't know who Presby is, <laughs> it's a hospital. I was just going to work like once, twice a week. That's a travel nurse life. Oh, so jealous. But my recruiter called and said, do you want to go to New York in five days? And I was like, oh, like for COVID. And she's like, yeah, I was like, sure. Like I had no thought about it. I think I very, I have a morbid way of like outlook on life sometimes. And I'm like, well, I have no kids and all these people have kids. So like, if I die, it's okay. Like we didn't know that much about COVID. We were still healthcare heroes then. Oh, I'm so over it. Everybody but you, is. regardless, you still volunteered to go. And where did yeah. you, where did you end up? So after the five days, I worked at Presby three of those five days. And then I like, remember I worked a night shift, woke up after two hours of sleep and was like, let's go to New York on Easter Sunday in 2020. And um, I worked at NYU Allen Presbyterian. And then I worked at NYU Columbia because they would call it sh like when you're showing up to your shift and they said, well, can you go to this hospital? Cause we need ICU nurses here. And at this time I only had maybe six months ICU experience and they were taking that because that's how low staffed everywhere was. That experience was completely life-changing on the nursing side, life side, the way I looked at life, everything about it. I mean, when you hear the stories, I mean, nurses posted left and right and doctors and respiratory therapists, everybody about like the trucks full of bodies because we couldn't put them anywhere. So we had the board on an ER triage board there. Everybody's color coordinated by their triage and black is dead. There, when I walked in each day to the ER, most of our board was black. And if they weren't black, they were red, which meant like they're actively dying. We had intubated patients in the hallways. We had the vent for two people. It like we had not enough vents. We ran out of propofol. That was great. And propofol is a, it's just like a sedative that we use for people that have the breathing tube. And just not everyone is that will be listening has medical knowledge. So intubation is a tube down into the trachea that breathes for you. Um, you're hooked up to a machine that acts pretty much as your lungs and then you're given propofol. So if you do have any type of cognitive awareness, you're not trying to pull that tube out, fight your caregivers, or it just helps with comfort as well. So you don't feel this tight, big pressurized tube in your throat. So, yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, when I was there, I was there the night at NYU in the ER, they're pulling the what five full-time staff members they had that either didn't have COVID or didn't quit or like run from this. Um, they pulled them aside. We're like, we're having an emergency meeting. And I'm like, Oh, this is bad. If a manager's here on night shift and that's the night they found out like the ER director like committed suicide. And it's because she got COVID. She went to, I think her hometown in Virginia and then she like couldn't help people. And that's like, that's when I realized, oh, the impact of this is really going to traumatize people mentally because when you're not helping somebody or, you know, continually surrounding yourself with death, you forget how to live. And I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be really bad. This is going to affect me. And I don't even realize it right now because I'm disassociated. I am here to work. I'm here to help. 
And you don't, we don't realize that even when you're at your job, when you're doing what is best, when you're helping it, it affects you on a deeper level. And you might not, like we've said before, you might not be able to even process that in the moment. And so I know for us, COVID didn't hit Pittsburgh really until about June when we started seeing high numbers. And that was when I was off orientation and learning my way around emergency medicine. And it was, it was a weird for me to see teenage kids come in on a ventilator or old, you know, young, healthy, 45 year old people with blood clots in their lungs. Um, when did you, when did you process or have you processed that experience? And did it feel like you were in your, I can only imagine because of how busy the ERs were in 2020 summer, just like the out of body experience of like everywhere you look is like beeping alarms, people coughing, people sick, people dying, people dead. Like it almost kind of, to me, would feel like some type of like mass casualty because at this point you're seeing multiple dead people. Um, When and how did you process that? And kind of how did that experience affect you? So I treated this the same way I treated how I grieved my mom. And I was like, tunnel vision, I have a job to do. I worked five or six nights a week. I think it was six. I blogged every day because I was like, I'm going to blog and it's going to be fine because I'm journaling my thoughts. But yeah, I pushed it down. And I remember I went from New York to D.C. in like 12 hours and started my job there and did three weeks there. I ended up pulling out of D.C. early just because I was, you know, done traveling. I was done sitting. I sat alone. That's the thing about when I wasn't working, I was sitting alone in a room by myself. So then that was an enjoyable, I I just like, I couldn't connect with nature. I couldn't connect with myself. I was like, this is time to come home. Um, so I came home and it was kind of a relief because yeah, Pittsburgh wasn't hit yet. Um, and that was June. Like that's when you're saying you got hit and I'm like, Oh, this is so refreshing. Like there's not dead bodies everywhere. We didn't quite ever have that, but there was a point where our entire emergency department, you know, we, we had to put our patients in closed doors room and we would have patients. It's like, we don't have any more rooms and this person has COVID. So like, what do we do? And it's like, I don't know. I came home and I had some sort of relief because it wasn't the same high tension. Everybody's, I mean, when I say code to code to code, I just had like, we didn't have crash carts. We had just like epi that we took and then syringes with normal saline. And I would just go from person to person. Like we would just code them like down the line. And it was just like, it's very high stress to be a nurse. But then when you're just having code, 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 and it's every day, you just learn to become jaded to even that. So when I came home, I felt relief. So I was thinking, I'm good. I dealt with it. I'm fine. And I worked in the ER. I think I went to trauma ICU for like eight months. And then I came back to the ER and the ER had not gotten any better in terms of like nurse to patient ratios. There weren't any. There was a point in uh, 2021 in our like end of September, I lost my freaking mind. I couldn't take the stress anymore. And we, yes, we were understaffed and there was too many patients and people are being mean, but nothing, I wouldn't say like nothing extravagant, but like I lost my mind. I was like, I can't be a nurse. And then I spiraled into the, if I'm not a nurse, then who am I? Because that's like how we identify in America is if I'm not my job title, then who am I? Because at this point I'm not running at all. I'm drinking every day when I'm coming home from work because it's so stressful. Yeah. It just, it came to a point of like, 
oh, I don't have to feel like this at my job every day. So I took like a month off. I quit drinking. I, I think I worked out again a little bit, but I just really like tried to like relax and just, I know not everybody has that opportunity. So I do feel very grateful. I could take that time because I had so many PTO hours. I didn't use that. They paid me. Um, but I, I mean, I did like nothing for the month. I didn't go on any trips. I didn't really like, I wouldn't say hang out with people, but I, it wasn't a time that I was just off and just living my best life. It was like, I, that's how long it took me to completely unwind that I could be like a person. So a year after, is it like over a year, a year and a half? Wow. Well, I'm glad that you got to take the time to decompress. As you guys know, I took, you know, like eight months off, <laughs> didn't work, didn't think about nursing, didn't touch another person until October of 2021 when I went back into emergency medicine as a travel nurse and where I will stay until we get paid more as staff nurses. So your experiences are a lot. I cannot imagine. Um, and I imagine that these experiences have affected your beliefs or maybe they've reinforced your beliefs or maybe they've challenged or changed. How has everything that you've been through or that you've experienced, has it reinforced your beliefs about death? Has it changed them? Has it challenged them? How do you view mortality now having gone through what you've gone through? I think that like what I said earlier is like, just be content with where you're at. And like, if you want to, you know, do all the things in the world and go shopping everywhere and go see everybody if that's what makes you happy, then great. We all are going to die. That's like the one thing we're guaranteed in life. And so I used to be in a very negative mindset of death doesn't scare me. And I think that's a really scary place to be because if death doesn't scare you, the one thing guaranteed to everybody, we all don't know what happens after we die. And if death doesn't scare you, like what are you living for is what kind of where my brain went. Wow. I've never thought of it like that. That shit gets dark, right? And now I'm a little more afraid. Like, you know, if someone's looking real, you know, sus walking behind me at night, I'm like, I see you, motherfucker. I don't want to die. I'm like enjoying each day. And yeah, like some days I'm not doing anything or seeing anybody and I'm just content. That's good enough. That's enough. That's life. Yes. That's where I think people are struggling because you hear all these like podcasts about like, this is how you better yourself. And this is what you do to make yourself happy. No, dude, just fucking be happy where you're at. Like this is where I'm at today and that's okay. Be happy with the PJs and the pizza. Yeah. So it sounds like you're able to live in a way that gives you this ability to say, I do want to live. I am scared of the, de of, of mortality because if you're not afraid, then what in, why are you even here? What's the point of even embracing life? And I think that that's really cool. So how would you say kind of to re reiterate, how do you live now? So, yeah. So a lot of people, like when they hear, you know, my whole family dynamic and they're like, wow, you've gone through a lot of loss. Like you're like, you, you just gone through a lot. And at first, I think I took it as a pity comment and I really hated it. And I'm like, now I'm like, yeah, I've gone through a lot. And life is, this is something my mom always told me and I freaking love it. Life is not worse. It's just different. And I, when she told me that, I didn't grasp it probably for the first five or six years after she died. And she had told me this for five years in a row when she was sick. I think that's so true. People, you know, lose their loved ones and I've never had, you know, a significant other or a partner that I've lost. So I can't speak for their experience for, for me and my experience. I know that, yes, I sometimes think of what ifs like, 
oh, like, what if my mom was here to see this? But she, I mean, I just have to tell myself, like, she's somewhere in the universe and, like, very aware of what's going on because that, you know, puts my mind at ease. But my life isn't worse. My life is just different today. And that means different from other people, different than when she was alive. I mean, so I think when people just think their life's over, it's not over. And you kind of learn how to, like, find yourself and, like, cope with everything, like, I mean, I don't drink anymore and I had to learn how to cope with that. And I'm like, well, if my mom was here, she'd be so proud and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, I think the life's not worse. It's just different. I need to discover like what life is for me. I think that's probably the most helpful tip I've ever been given when it comes to losing somebody because you want to kind of be mad. You want to say, well, my life, I don't have this person and I can't, I can't live this way. I can't do this, but you can, uh, losing people doesn't ruin your life but it, it your life will be different and I think that's a great really kind of positive way to look about your life because you could have easily taken all the loss in your life and all these experience and become a really dark cynical angry person but instead I'm sitting across from you today and just seeing nothing but like light and spreading happiness and kindness and you are one of my favorite people I've ever had the chance to work with. Not only are you amazing at what you do, but you do it in a way that makes the patient, other staff members, and just people you know feel comfortable, safe, and secure. So thanks. Yeah. I think people also, it's not all happy, joyous, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I went through a lot of therapy. I am still in therapy, like currently working on like positivity worksheets. So I, you know, if people seem like they have it all together, we don't. The five stages of grief are very, very real. And like, I really like what you said about like, you, you see light and positivity. Cause I, I was that person that was drinking and mad at the world and in like, not just very discontent. And you can get through those times if you're in that right now. That's like, I think what people should know is like, this doesn't have to be forever. This is temporary. That's a huge thing too. This is temporary this feeling. I love that. Well, Julia, thank you so very much. This was amazing. It was great to see you again. I haven't seen Julia since winter 2020 or 2021. It's been a while, two years. Thank you so very much for taking the time to not only sit down and chat with me, but share your story with many other people. And I hope this was as cathartic for you as it was for me. Um, I don't know what that word means, but it was. Cathartic is like healing. <laughs> well, Julia, thank you so much. And if, if people do want to connect with you, if you want to share social media, you don't have to. Um, where can people find you to connect with you? My Instagram name is jbird underscore 412 Pittsburgh. Um, but yeah, just DM me. I, you know, if you have an experience you want to share, I love talking about this stuff. I think it's really cool to connect with people. And if you're interested in going into ICU or emergency nursing, Julia is the person you absolutely need to reach out to. She taught me so much in just a short time and I'm a better nurse for it. You're very sweet. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe not. <laughs> All right, Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. This is great. This is so fun. Yay. I'm happy. That will do it for today's interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Julia Bird, as she is very near and dear to my heart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to leave a rating and review on your favorite streaming platform. If you would like to follow along on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Embracing Death Podcast. You can also check out our website to learn a little bit more about the show at EmbracingDeathPodcast.com. 
we want to hear from you. If you or someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death or dying or their mortality and would be interested in sharing your story, please email your stories to embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find a way to connect with us through the website and submit your stories there. And once again, thank you so much for tuning in to Embracing Death. The more we talk about death, the more we learn, the more we learn, the less we fear, and the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives we still have yet to live. And as Carson McCuller said, how can the dead be truly dead when they still live in the souls of those who are left behind? We will see you next week.